This is Andrew Sill, Associate Music Director of New York City Ballet, and I'm your guest host today for another episode of See the Music. Today we're diving into the captivating world of Igor Stravinsky's Symphony in Three Movements, famously used in George Balanchine's ballet of the same name. We will journey back to a 2013 live presentation and explore the depth and brilliance of this incredible piece. Without further ado, let's jump right in and experience the magic together. Ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> that is the introduction to Stravinsky's Symphony in Three Movements. And tonight, during our See the Music program, we're going to explore this great symphony from two different angles. First, we're going to talk about some of the musical nuts and bolts that come together to make this a very tightly constructed work. But we're also gonna talk about some of the film images which inspired the creation of this symphony. So, first let's go to some of those musical details. After the introduction that you just heard, almost every single episode in the first movement of this symphony is derived from a fairly simple division of an octave. So what do we need? We need an octave. Cameron, could you play for us an octave from G to G? Okay. Now, let's take that low G, and we're going to add a third above it, and we're going to get this interval. And we're going to take the upper G, and we're going to add a third below that, and we're going to get this interval. So far, fairly simple, right? But you're going to be amazed. We're going to play a section of music now from the first movement. And Stravinsky makes every single instrument that enters during this episode and every single note that those instruments play grow organically out of this one idea. And by the time he has accumulated all these layers of instruments and ideas all coming from the same thing, the music will have accumulated a kind of a grand and inevitable power. Right there at that point, the music shifts gears, but the double basses and the timpani 
play those very same intervals, only this time with a new rhythm, a rhythm that Stravinsky called, rather tongue-in-cheek, a rumba rhythm. Now, it was tongue-in-cheek because when you hear this, especially in the context of the whole piece, it sounds absolutely nothing like a rumba. However, this rhythm does come back in a very interesting way in the last movement, so let's listen. Okay, store that away in the back of your minds. Now, let's switch gears now and talk about some of the images that uh, inspired the creation of this work. Stravinsky was commissioned by the New York Philharmonic to write this symphony, uh, which he started in the early 40s and he completed in 1945. And he said that the outer movements of this symphony were inspired by newsreel footage that he had seen of the Second World War. In particular, this first movement was inspired by images he saw of scorched earth tactics that were used against the Chinese. And in the next musical example that we're going to play for you, he created a kind of conversation among various instruments in the orchestra, which in his mind were meant to accompany images of Chinese peasants digging in their fields. Now the musical material for the second movement of this symphony also derives from a fairly simple uh, motivic idea. What Stravinsky did was he took a major chord, so I'm going to ask Cameron to play us a D major chord. And then he took that same chord and turned it into a minor chord, which would sound like this. And he explored all of the ambiguities and dissonances and tensions that could be created if he piled both of those chords on top of one another. At the very beginning of the symphony, we hear a rather charming, somewhat old-fashioned theme that Stravinsky wrote. Almost sounds like a nod to Rossini or Mozart in the upper strings, who are all playing in D major. But at the very same time, he has the lower strings playing in D minor. And just that simple act of putting those two chords on top of one another creates a kind of a, an interesting undercurrent, which I think of as being somewhat dark. goes on to explore that in many different ways in this movement. But this movement was also recycled from a film project that Stravinsky abandoned. And so there's a film connection here as well. 
He was asked to submit music for a uh, film adaptation of Franz Werfel's Song of Bernadette. And the middle episode in this second movement is music that he wrote to accompany a scene where Bernadette has a vision of the Virgin Mary. This is music that is really, to me, otherworldly and searching and yearning somehow. And even before I had any idea what the source of this music was, to me, it has always seemed strange and beautiful. Music for the third movement was also inspired by film footage from the Second World War. At the beginning, it was footage of Nazi soldiers goose-stepping. And here, Stravinsky exploits that same idea that we heard about in the second movement, where he piles major chords and minor chords on top of each other, creating a kind of conflict and tension in the music, which, of course, is very different here because of the different character of the music itself. Stravinsky said that he didn't really want us to hear this symphony as a story, and yet Stravinsky himself supplied a kind of a story for the third movement. So we're going to pick up the story at a point in the third movement where the Nazi war machine is grinding to a halt. And then we hear the beginning of a, a sort of a stuttering, hesitant trombone th uh, theme. It's a fugue theme. Trombone starts it, and then the piano takes over. And that theme suggested to Stravinsky somehow the overturning of Nazi arrogance. And then the piano and the harp take over this theme together, which is significant because in the first movement of the symphony, you have piano, but you have no harp. And in the second movement of the symphony, you have harp, but you have no piano. And it's only in the third movement of the symphony that both join forces. And somehow this was subtly or unconsciously suggestive to Stravinsky of the rising of the Allied powers.
Then the musical march continues on, and finally, at the end of the movement, we get the Allied victory. Now, this music is very joyous, and it also features a rhythm which is none other than that rumba rhythm that we talked about in the first movement. But this time, Stravinsky recycles it for the whole orchestra to play in a kind of celebration. So, as the pit goes back down and we play this final example for you, I want to ask a kind of an odd favor. I want you to forget everything that I've told you about this symphony. <laughs> Some of you are looking at me saying, that's no problem, I've already forgotten everything that you told me. <laughs> but the reason I'm asking for this favor is that every time you, you hear this music, every time you see this ballet, it will create for you new associations and new meanings and ultimately, that kind of freedom from having some meaning imposed on the music from outside, even by the composer, is something that Stravinsky and Balanchine both valued so very much. So we thank you for your kind attention, and we hope you enjoy the performance. <laughs> Thank you for joining us on City Ballet, the podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts to stay up to date on episode releases. All of us at New York City Ballet hope to see you soon in the theater. Head over to nycballet.com to see what's on our stage. <laughs>